Welcome to FinTech Family Hour. This is Zach Anderson Pettit, Content Director at Money 2020 by day and your host by night. Our guest this week is Arielle Cohen, co-founder and CEO of Navon. Navon is a corporate travel and expense management company, but that's way understating what they're up to. And that's why we're talking to Arielle this week. We will definitely do another one of these down the line because Navon's fascinating, Ariel's fascinating, and the whole thing's just fun. Oh, and Ariel will be having a conversation with the one and only Ben Horowitz Sunday, October 22nd at 5 p.m. at Money 2020. Plugging dates, don't mind me. This episode is brought to you by FS Vector, the firm for innovative financial services. And without further ado, here's Ariel. Welcome, friend. It's good to meet you. I, I feel like I already know you having had Michael on the podcast, being like Kelly's one of my favorite people on earth. So I feel like I kind of know you, but I feel like I guess we should do this interview thing anyway, right? Yeah. First of all, I'm happy to be here. And it, I feel that you got the better part of Nirvana up until now. So now you need to compromise on me. But, you know, Michael and Kelly are great. And it's amazing that you've already, you know, you got to meet them and spend time with them. Yeah, I feel like I, uh, I feel like I've had a privilege to be kind of close to the story and close to the company through some interesting times. I mean, I believe it was like right when the brand change was happening is actually like right when I met Kelly. I mean, it was like a, it was a very interesting time and we'll talk about brand change and stuff, but I actually want to go a very different direction and no, it's not about your horse. Um, I want to go back to your childhood. So I, I think I've listened to just about every interview and maybe not probably I missed the one where you go deep in your childhood, but I'm very curious, like with the adult that you've become, what was your childhood like? Like just paint that picture for us a little bit. Cause I think everybody wants to know about your 1.5 billion or whatever it is you've raised, but I want to know like what like what were you doing at the age of five so childhood wow you you kind of you kind of uh, came out of the gate childhood so i, I actually i grew up in a, in israel i was uh, born in jerusalem actually uh i would say in a fairly what today probably people will will uh, define as the, maybe a poor neighborhood i would define it as a simple neighborhood but uh, but actually had really good childhood there uh then kind of uh, moved to uh Fairly small town in Israel. It's called Kfar Sabak. Uh, grew, grew up there, did my thing. Actually, and, and there was a point in time that I decided that school is too boring, and I mean it. And I think it was kind of at the age of 10. And then more and more stopped showing up to school and doing other things. Other things could be played basketball a lot. I'm not tall at all, but I just decided that's something that I like. So played basketball a lot. Actually, that's what I did most of my time. I'm talking about like playing like eight hours a day, like instead of going to school, like just, you know, just playing basketball. And then uh, kind of, I, I think something that, you know, we kind of, we can take it to business. Something that I think impacted me a lot in my childhood is that uh, there was a, my, my father had a business and in 08 in Israel, in 01 in Israel, actually all over the world, there was a pretty big recession, which really, really impacted the, you know, his business eventually we went under and I think it really impacted the, you know, my, my business thinking and, and why, you know, you always, 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 always needs to be super sharp 
And I think there is always, you know, a crisis that is waiting for you around the corner. And I think you need as a business leader to have enough contingencies, right? And enough scenario planning to kind of uh, handle the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So the opportunity is always there and it's really, really easy to focus on the opportunity. But you also need to know that there would be somehow there's, and I do think that it is kind of related to my childhood and that kind of time in my childhood. So that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I think first off, I need you to paint a little bit more of a picture of the idea of like being born and growing up at least a little bit in Jerusalem, because part of me just heard you say you grew up in Jerusalem. And the other part of me sounded like your childhood was like the beginning of love in basketball or something like that, where you were, you know, doing eight hours a day of just like pick up in the streets. I know you weren't in Jerusalem at that point, probably, but like that connection sounds like I grew up in a very unique neighborhood in Kansas City and I played yeah, eight, nine hours of basketball just about every day and then got to high school and realized there no way in hell I was ever going to be able to play in real life. Um, so I associate with a lot of that. And I think that it is also where I learned a lot of my fight or flight instincts or like the if then statements that you were kind of talking about. So I get it. But what would like what's pickup basketball in Israel? Like, I don't I don't even know the right question to ask here. That's I just need you to tell me more about that. Yeah, no, it's kind of funny. The, the reason that that's what I was doing is that uh, I'm, I'm someone that, that can get bored extremely fast. Um, and in school, you know, it's such a, I don't know, it's too, too, too defined for me and to kind of, you know, you study this and this and that. And it's not, I think, how I'm learning. So basketball was kind of a way to not be there, right? To not be, you know, to not be at school and just playing. And again, don't think about me as like a really good basketball player. I was just playing a lot. Right? Don't worry, I wasn't. <laughs> because it was kind of going, yeah, but going exactly. I was just, uh, it was a way not to be there, uh, you know, at school. And and I think, you know, uh, Israel back then, like Israel of your, I'm basically talking about the Israel of the 80s, it was a very, very simple place. Like if you kind of, uh, I would kind of define it as not a lot of people had money, right? Most people didn't have money. And I think that when you don't have money and you're in a neighborhood and you kind of do your thing, it kind of creates a lot of relationships, right? Like really, really long-term relationship. And it creates more of like, you know, you play together with people, you hang out with, with people and so on. So there is actually, you know, sometimes people will def- maybe think about these things as a bad thing. I actually think it's amazing. It's like, it's kind of real life and your true friendships and, uh, and, uh, and all of these things. And that was kind of Israel back then. That was kind of my childhood. And I've mentioned kind of a certain hardship in a certain age, but that kind of hardship really developed me, I think, as a, maybe as a business leader. So I would even look at this as a good thing. Yeah, I actually associate with that a lot. It kind of sounds like Israel back then was a little bit just like the hood today in the U.S. Like that is basically where I grew up and how I ended up playing all the time. I'm curious, how co- how competitive were you? Were you like that kid that would, you know, would you get in a fight at the end of the game if you lost? Like how, how intense were you in that vein? I will tell you a really funny story. So in a completely, completely, completely different context, I was like, uh, I, find, I found myself in there some bet that led to a wrestling match. I'm talking about two weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 and there was no way for me to actually win that, uh, because the other guy was younger and way stronger than me. 
but I'm extremely, extremely, extremely competitive. Like I'm really, really competitive. I really don't like to lose. And, and by the way, my daughter, I have a 10, I have three kids, but I have a 10 years old daughter and she's like me. And you could see when I'm in competition, you know, you see me smiling right now. I can switch like in a millisecond to a completely different face. And that would be like, a, you know, a competition mode. So I'm, so in that match, I actually, I, I eventually lost because there was no way for me to win it. But for quite some time, I was managing to even lead. You know, I did, just didn't have the, stand, the stamina to eventually win, right? Because obviously there were differences between us. <laughs> but, uh, but as long as I was in that zone of like competitiveness, it was very, very, very hard for that guy to win. And he was 27. I'm 48, right? So, uh, so it was very hard for him to win because I was in that kind of mode. When I'm in my competitive mode, it's almost impossible, impossible to, you know, to win against me. And I, and I like it. I like competition and I also like uh, winning. And I also, I think I understand what it means. You know, we kind of mentioned hobbies and like, uh, you know, riding on horses and stuff. And I only started it two and a half years ago, but it's really important for me to be really good at that. And I have this uh, coach that he, I think he usually yells at me and I actually like it because I think that, uh, you know, he basically tries to make me better without kind of, uh, you know, sugarcoating it or like telling me, hey, hey, it was a great jump. Well, obviously I know that it was not a great job. <laughs> I don't need him to, you know, tell me that that was a great job to kind of, I don't know, uh, be nice to me. So I think that that's kind of, if you're competitive, you would want to be really good. Do you have that person today, like in your in your day to day at Navon? Like, do you have a person that is uh, reminding you that you could be better? Maybe not telling you that you, or I don't know, fuck, maybe telling you that you do suck. Get better, Ariel. Come on, man. Like, let, you know, let's do it. Like, do you have that person? Yeah, I, I do have. I have several people like that. So, you know, you've met uh, Michael, and you know, and Michael, you, I, I'm sure that you, when you met him, you you saw uh, someone that uh, is kind of smiling all the time and a, a really, really nice person. And, and he is, but he's also a very serious person. And when we are in a closed room, he can actually tell me with a smile, right, uh, that I sucked, right? And he can tell me, you know, he's usually, uh, you know, with me in the board meetings in other places, and he will definitely tell me very, very straight in my face, hey, you know, you, you didn't show up there, right? Or you showed up today, um, which I respect it a lot. Uh, Nina, which I don't think that you've met, is pretty much the same. She will uh, kind of tell me in my face, hey, you know, uh, this is where you need to be better when you're doing that. So, uh, and I usually, and there are several people like that, by the way, in my staff, I usually, the people that will be around me for a very, very long time, it's because we gain each other respect and this respect will not come by you telling me how everything is great. This respect will be, will come by feedback and the feedback can be harsh, but from a respectful place, right? Because, you know, everybody are kind of trying to eventually be good and do the right things. I can associate with that a lot, actually. I think there's, I think there's a thing amongst like serious people that like to have fun where you come across fun and then suddenly you step into this like zone where the fun person all of a sudden really cares. Like this is kind of like when you get to money 2020, right? For me, like I can be, I am, I am me all of the time, but as soon as anything steps out of line, like 
at the show, like I'm a completely different person and I will jump down somebody's throat and scream at them and make it very clear what I need. Um, but it, it's weird. I think that catches people off guard sometimes, right? So do you have to be careful about that when you're like, obviously, you know, Michael can kind of manage up a little bit, but do you have to be careful about that when you're communicating kind of with the, with the team, especially as big as it's gotten? But you do, and and but I'm not. Uh, I would not consider myself as an expert in this because there will definitely be things that will trigger me, right? And I would basically come and say, I'll tell you something that will always trigger me: a, a bug in the product that will affect a user, and I see it, and and uh, and it's not being fixed for whatever reason, that will be a huge trigger for me. Or a, a bad, uh, I don't know, a bad call with a customer in support, it's a trigger. And to tell you that I'm always kind of responding in a calm and collected way uh, to these kind of things, that, that will not be true, right? So I think that there are definitely triggers, but, uh, but to your point, as you are communicating with, with more people, my method is that when I'm communicating with people regularly, I'm allowing to myself to be more open, but also more triggered. And when I'm communicating with a broader team, uh, I'm way more kind of uh, adding, I would say, layers of, of communication to it. Now, I, I think that uh, there are different communication styles. There are people that will do it like with all of the various teams and so on. I'm kind of, if you don't really know me, I will not go very hard, uh, you know, with you in, in my communication style. But if you worked with me and you know me, you know, I, I can definitely be go there. And, you know, we kind of talked about hobbies. So I, I actually I have a different hobby that I've been actually doing for a very, very, very long time. And it's scuba diving and it went kind of to more extreme scuba diving over the years. And, uh, and I would say more serious scuba diving. And I think that's actually the best example because, you know, I'm I'm with a group of people that... Scuba divers, I actually think that usually they're having a lot of fun and they're usually not that serious people. You know, you go to parties in the night, you drink a lot, you do a lot of other things. But if you'll ever watch people that are going to, that are doing scuba diving the two hours before the dive, like we're doing cave dives. So the two, the two hours before the, the cave dive, it's actually very serious. It's very, very, very serious. If you watch them, it's tense. It's, it's actually intense. It's serious. It's a lot of planning. And you watch it, any scuba divers, how they check their equipment, like, you know, the 15 minutes before, right? And so on. So I think there are times, right? There are times to, to, to have fun and there are times to be serious. And then there are times to do the thing, right? Which is, uh, you know, when you jump to the water, like in scuba dive. So I think it's all of these things are kind of similar. Like you can have fun, but, but in most of the cases, it's actually when it's the real thing, it's serious. And when you start to talk about the the dollar amounts you guys have raised, start to talk about you know the size of the company that you're getting into and the number of people that you're uh, that you're managing, leading, uh, it gets very serious. How big how big is the team now total? So so we are thirty one hundred uh, globally. So that's pretty much across the board. Uh, and yeah, it's a pretty big team. You know, it's kind of uh, we grew fast in you know, nineteen. We were already twelve hundred. Then we we did layoffs during COVID. Kind of took it to 600 people, and now we are basically 5x of the team of what we were, you know, back then in in, in 2020. Is this the most people you've ever led, or have you ever had a role where you've led more than this? 
No, it's by far. Uh, when I was at HP, I've learned, I've managed a team of uh, 700 people. And back then I thought it's really big and non -manage not manageable. But now, you know, now it's basically uh, a, a much, a much bigger team. And also, I would say much more complex team because it's basically, it's a company. So it's a lot of different people that are doing a lot of different things, but to eventually do one thing and one thing only. And, and in my mind, it's to make travel easy, right? It's to eventually have somebody booking a trip, a business trip, and it, it will be really, really easy to book it. And if you need to change, it will be really easy to change. And eventually, if you need to expense it, it will re be really easy to expense. And if the company needs to know where you are, they will be, they will be able to know where you are and communicate with you, right? So I think the mission is simple, but the, the sheer complexity of 3000 people globally doing a lot of different things, uh, definitely it's, it's complex. How much do you think about scaling yourself and like trying to become the ideal leader versus like leading, leaning all the way into your strengths. So you, you, the, the reason I ask this, you seem like a person that very, I, that I understand. And I like kind of love that has very strong strengths. And I don't know you that well yet, but I have a hunch. The weaknesses are just as weak as the strengths are strong, just a guess. So how much, I mean, are you trying to bring those weaknesses up? Do you hire for the weaknesses? Is it like the standard answer of hire for weaknesses, lean into strengths, or is there more nuance in your brain with that? Cause I would imagine, managing 3,100 people is different. I think it's way more nuanced and it's also than just hire to your, uh, you know, to your uh, weaknesses. It's way more nuanced because eventually you can do that. And I gave you Michael as an example. Michael is actually different than me in his management style and he would have other strengths and other weaknesses. Does and, he have weaknesses? We're working. He seems like, oh, definitely. I know, I but he's one of those like perfect sure. people. It's annoying. Every time I talk to him, I'm just like, I need you to put a comma out of place. And like, I feel like you wake up in the morning <laughs> with a comma out of place. It's just different, you know? No, he is he, actually really good. But I think all of us have weaknesses and all of us are different. But I think when you think about the team, it's almost like, almost like music, right? Where you... I think you can have different styles, different type of people, different weaknesses and different strengths. If you are not uh, broadcasting on the same wave, it will not work. And and I think this is something that uh, took me some time to understand. And, and, you know, if I'm thinking about any hiring mistake that I did, it was around that. It was not around that. Is that person qualified to do the job? You know, if somebody was doing an exact job for very, very long time, the, the likelihood that he will not be qualified is very low. Or it's not is that person smart or not. Because, you know, if you are like in tech companies, the C-level in tech companies for years, you're probably smart. Or it's not are you driven or not, right? You are driven. Uh, it would be the, the the wave. Are we kind of uh, broadcasting kind of on the, same, uh, on the same wave? So I think that's really important. And it actually took me probably very, very, very long time to, to, to understand that, that leads to kind of your question, you know, am I still trying to, to get better, to improve, to kind of work on my weaknesses? I hope I do. I think all of us have defaults, right? So I'm, I'm a lot of times will lean to my defaults, right? Or kind of, I mentioned triggers a, a, a earlier. Uh, but yeah, you know, I'm aware of my weaknesses and sometimes I have people that will tell me what the weaknesses are. And I do have some people that are, are good enough to do that. And 
and then do I work on it or not? I will tell you what I think. I think, you know, one of my investors, uh, Ben Horvitz, was touching it in, in his book, right? Of this wartime peacetime CEO. Uh, I think that in wartime, I would tend to go to my defaults. Right. So, so, and kind of you talked about flight or fight and this kind of thing. So I will fight in world time. I will fight and will quickly go to, to my defaults to, you know, to your point of, about childhood and so on. In a peacetime, I am taking more time to think about what, wait a second. Is there, can I wait a second before I'm sending this slack? Maybe, you know, the amount of slacks that I have that I never sent, like it's written there in a certain way and I've decided not to, to send them or emails, or just telling some, something to somebody, I will definitely take more time in a peacetime to think about what I'm about to say. I'm way more, less patient about it in, in world times. Now let's take a moment to talk about our exclusive sponsor, FS Vector. Relationships, relationships, one more time relationships. One of the hardest parts of building a meaningful company in the world of finance is understanding what's actually happening in Washington with agencies, the administration, everything going on on Capitol Hill. Who do you actually go to for what in the world of government in general? It is just confusing. We may want to think we're disconnected from the world of politics, building companies. But if we've seen anything this year, it's that we're not. We are very tied to it. The ability to pick up the phone and get an opinion from a decision maker in this world, in the world of politics, is worth its weight in gold. Those aren't calls just anyone can make. This is why I recommend FS Vector. Those are the relationships they have. They have partners and senior advisors that have been cultivating those relationships for decades. Some of them have even been on the show. You may know John Betchia. You may know Amy Friend. You may know folks like that. They've been around. They've started building those relationships before they needed them, which is exactly what I recommend anyone do with their government affairs slash policy strategy. Don't wait until it's too late. Get advisors, good ones even, good ones especially, only good ones, and the good ones are at FS Vector. Reach out to FS Vector, go into that contact us, and write in all caps at the top of the form, Zach sent me. FSVector.com and tell him Zach sent you. I guess going back to 2020, you're running a travel business, you're running an expense management business, you're running a thing that, you know, went through the floor, right? I mean, that's very clearly wartime. I think that's like, you know, there's no argument that anybody's having a peacetime during that. But like, right now, do you consider, I mean, the macro economy could tell me that maybe there's some more time, but also at the same time, I think people are traveling again, things are moving in a pretty good direction. You guys are not growing slowly, I would say. I mean, the you know, things are moving up and to the right in a pretty damn fast manner. And I could see that being peacetime-ish, but also I could see pieces of it being wartime. So I guess there's two questions. One is kind of how do you define them? Um, and then I guess the second is like, where are you at right now? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's, it's, it's actually interesting. I was talking about it with a CEO of another kind of, uh, I would say, late stage successful startup uh, the other day. And we talked about managing a company in COVID, like travel company in COVID. He didn't manage a company, I mean, company in COVID. Dude, I don't know how you <laughs> made it out this. mentally. Like you still have you non, know, something? non-gray hair. Like it's, it's impressive. Yeah, I do have, <laughs> but yeah. But, 
There is something interesting. I think that managing something when the crisis is really, really, really obvious, it's in, a, in somewhat easier. Right? So I'm not suggesting that managing the company during COVID was easy, but it's easier because in recession, you have way more uncertainty and it's not clear what is the decision. Right? By the way, COVID, I have extreme certainty. My revenue was zero. Right. There is, there is, it's the most clarifying thing that you can have. Like you look at your PNL and it's zero, right? You have no, you have no income, right? Uh, it, it, so the decisions are, well, tough, right? Are obvious, right? You cannot come and say, I just lost, you know, I just moved from $100 million in revenue to zero and I will keep the same size of the team. So is it a tough decision to make? Yes. But it's kind of obvious, right? So, so, and if you will not make this decision, I guess you're going to run out of money in a very short period of time. So the decision will be made, right? So one way or the other. So, so, so it's almost uh, easier than to, there is recession. You don't really know what the impact on your business is. You see impact. We do see impact. You definitely see impact. Things are kind of uh, harder. But they are still good to your point about our growth rate. Do you invest or not? Do you do the next M&A deal or not? Let's say that I have no visibility at all to the future. I don't know if recession next year is harder or getting out of recession. Uh, and let's say that I'm looking at a pretty big acquisition right now, which is by the way true. So, so do I do, do I do this or not? Right? Uh, I don't know. You know, you really need to think hard of the implications of a mistake. Right. And the, and the, and the mistake is around you have less business visibility. So I would argue it's different challenges. I think there is when you're in peacetime, it's maybe easy when, and maybe it needs other kind of, uh, maybe then you have time to work on yourself and maybe kind of work on your weaknesses. When it's clear all time in a strange way, it's also easy. When it's in between, I actually think that's the hardest. I actually think that's really, really, really hard. And that, I mean, reading between the lines, it's kind of what you're saying. That's where we're at right now is somewhere in between where it might go up, might go down. And I imagine you're like maximizing your option value time-wise on any acquisition you're thinking about, right? I imagine you're not sprinting to make any decisions as much as you are sprinting to make decisions. Like, I feel like that's probably, uh, there's probably some, some squaring of the circle there a little bit. For sure. But you know, uh, if you look at the, and we are a company that I think is actually really good at M&A. It's something that we mastered really, really well here. And we've done, uh, I think, more than five acquisitions to date. We're not buying the cheap thing, right? We are buying something that is good for our business, right? So even in this market, uh, you can have uh, stuff that are really, really good. And stuff that uh, that is good is competitive. So uh, sometimes you have to rush into a decision, right? Because it's competitive, because you are not the only one that are seeing that thing. And so even in these times, you, you need to actually make decision. I, I, I am not a, a big believer in paralysis analysis because you cannot make a decision. Uh, I think make a decision and the decision can be no because you cannot sustain the risk, right? There, uh, there was actually... A company, a pretty big company that we looked at buying during COVID, which in hindsight, I would have bought them. I didn't buy them. 
uh, but I just didn't do it because the risk was so high for, for Navan, right? For the future of Navan. And it was almost like betting Navan on that. Like if it would have worked, it would have been amazing. Um, if it would have, and, uh, but, but there was the other way around. And the big unknown was when travel will come back. And the implications on burn of both companies, both companies were burning a lot of cash because of, of COVID. Uh, the implications of burn if travel will not come back in the next 12 months was that we'll go under, right? So eventually the risk was too high. And although in hindsight, in hindsight, I should have bought them. I should have bought them because I knew, now I know when travel came back, right? So, uh, right. I couldn't do it, right? I couldn't do it. It was too risky. So this is kind of, but it's better to make the decision. And I made the decision. And by the way, in hindsight, it was the wrong decision. And I made the decision not to buy them. And uh, and that's it, right? But I needed to make the decision. So you mentioned Ben earlier and you and Ben, I'm a, we haven't met in person yet, you and I, and we get to meet in person in what, like five weeks, something like that. This is we're recording on, uh, I know what day it is. It's September, what, closed phone, September 15th. And we are going to be meeting, I believe, October 22nd. And Ben is going to be with you and we're going to shake hands. And then you're going to go up on stage and you're going to just blow everybody's minds. And one of the things that I know you guys probably won't cover, because I would imagine by now you're probably sick of answering the COVID questions and you're probably sick of answering. So tell me about what it was like to change the name of the company. Like if I were you, I would be like, shut the fuck up. Ask me about my actual business. I'm so tired of answering this question. But I do want to ask, I have to ask because of the fact that you and Ben are actually friends. Right. And that was like the reason that I was so excited to confirm you guys and have you up on stage. What was that like? during COVID, like having that relationship, like your conversations, because I mean, his like, you know, the, the silver bullet thing, like, I just love his book so much. And I'm curious what that was actually like. Yeah. First I'll tell you, you know, there is a reason why are we friends, right? Because Ben is also in my board and he, and, and, and Andreessen invested, uh, I don't know, I think probably $400 million or maybe less, maybe more, but kind of in the vicinity of it. So it's a big investment, but it's a, it's a big investment. So it's also serious to your point earlier. But we're also friends, right? And so why are we friends? We are friends because we are telling each other the truth. Because I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll not give you the details because they're very internal, but there was some fuck up here in the company like recently. And, and uh, I was kind of, I was uh, having dinner with Ben and kind of uh, talked with him about it. And I was explaining it and I was actually not owning it. Okay. I was, uh, I was explaining it, uh, with a lot of reasoning. I will excuses, I would say. And Ben looked at me and he said, yes, but what does it mean about you as a CEO? Right. And he didn't ask, like, he didn't tell me, you know, maybe you should have thought about it. Like he went to the, you know, to the heart of the matter. Right. And, and as a friend, by the way, it's also kind of, uh, you know, think about it. It's, it's something that it's very hard to say and also very hard to receive because he was basically questioning my, my, my capability as a CEO. Actually, should you be the CEO of this company because of this backup? Right. If you want to take it to the extreme. Right. But that's what I respect. Right? That's why I actually spend time with him. That's why I listen to him. And by the way, I can do the other way around, right? I can tell him, you know, you guys are investors here. 
but we are also building a company, right? And that's why I need you to do, right? And, uh, and not every round is rosy, right? There are some terms that sometimes can hurt investors and other investors and so on, and you need to have tough discussions around it, right? Uh, I'll give you one example, which I think it's obvious. Andreessen went into Navan or Trip Actions back then with a second round and a second investment in June 2019, for a $4 billion round that was a preemption round, which means that they were investing ahead of our future growth, right? So basically you're talking about the very high multipliers, right? Right. And suddenly 2020 happens and obviously the investment thesis is completely off, right? Because not only that we're not going, we're going down again with big investment. So what, so, and then I'm coming with a round that is, it was convertible round, right? So it's kind of structured round and complex to expand, but for sure, they loot that round, right? The for sure, they loot that, right? So would Andreessen support it or not? And I can tell you that Ben was the first one to support it. And why? Because it was, that was the right thing for the company, right? I'm not sure that it was the right thing for Andreessen. It was the right thing for the company. Right. By the way, in, in hindsight, it was also the right thing for Andreessen because the company since then kind of, you know, uh, went to a better place. Uh, but it was really not obvious in May 2020. So I think having honest discussion, direct discussion, it's something that both of us uh, value. And because of it during COVID, the, the, the number one call that I would have on every decision that I made, and we needed to make a, to make a lot of tough decisions, uh, was to Ben. Uh, it was my first phone call actually in March that I've decided to, you know, okay, obviously the plan that we are trying to, re- to, to do is really, really not valid. And uh, we need to do something else. And uh, we sat in his house and for quite some time talked about, you know, layoffs. And basically it's not the company that we had a month ago, right? A month ago we were like doing this and everybody wanted to work for us. And now it's not the same company and let's do something else. And it's, again, it sounds like you, there are two years after and everything looks like, you know, uh, obvious and, uh, and life is great. But back then it was tough, really, really tough. And, and Ben was a really good coach at that kind of uh, time. As I grow up in my career, I'm realizing that like the more, the more hard conversations I have, the more the more I grow, the more things lead to better things. Like the, I guess the obstacle is the way sort of vibe at the end of the day. And one thing I absolutely hate is having hard conversations. And it sounds like it's something that you have, uh, I don't know about mastered. I don't know if anyone ever masters it, but it sounds like you've learned some things and it sounds like you've gotten quite good at it. I'm curious, like what your if you know if there's like an REL one two three of the of hard conversations like does that exist or are there any things that you've learned about you know having to have some of the tougher conversations that exist in the world? I, I think uh, first of all, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Actually, it happened to me last week, and I was in this uh, whole show, and I was actually really good, and I felt really good, and I came second on this competition. Okay. And I'm coming kind of out of the ring and I'm super happy, right? Like super, super happy. And I'm kind of looking at my, my coach and, and he's pissed and he looks at me and he tells me, and I'm like, hey, what? Like, you know, this is, this was pretty cool. And he said, yeah, you came second because you cut this corner and next time the earth will just 
throw you off when you'll do that again, right? So you actually won it in all, came second in the wrong way, right? And I was, by the way, in the first 15 minutes, I was like fuming. I was like, you know, I came second, leave me alone. But, you know, after I calmed down and also watched the video, right? Because it's kind of, you can watch the video of the thing. I actually saw that he was, he was right, right? And I think that's the thing. And I actually think that he was not effective in the feedback to me. I think there is time and place, right? If he would have waited 15 minutes, maybe after my heart rate would go down a little bit and will, you know, will show it to me in the video, probably I would be more uh, receptive to the feedback. But at that point, it just pissed me off, right? And I don't think it was effective. But I would have seen this video and I would have seen that I've actually cut the corner, right? So if he would have just told me, you were great, amazing, and then I watched the video and I see that I was not good, I will not trust him. Right, I will not trust him to actually be my coach. So I think management is always complex. Playing devil's advocate with someone like you, is there an argument to be made that right when you get off the horse is actually the moment to come give you that information and piss you the fuck off so that it stays in your head and like has this impact on that's you? That's what he says because he says that I never listen to him. So that's actually what he's I'm just. Saying. I mean, I'm just asking the question. I don't know, but you know. <laughs> no, it, it's so interesting for something like, I'll tell you what actually it really is. For something like me, it's better let me fall off the horse. I'm actually, I'm not kidding. Like, uh, it, yeah, because every time that I really learned is when I fell, right? And usually you see the advancement in my capabilities. It's usually after I fell off the horse. And if the fall was really bad, I've actually learned way more. So we're like, 37 minutes in, we've been talking a lot about interacting with people. And I don't know if we've like said the word fintech out loud yet or even talked a ton about the business. How much of your day to day is like obsessing about the humanity and trying to understand people and trying to like almost like behaviorally behavioral economics, like people into the direction, you know, lead a horse to water sort of thing um, versus thinking about, you know, the ins and outs of uh, interchange associated with the card that you guys are running internally or things like that. You know, like how do you how, how much of your brain power is going to different things? It's so funny. I, I think that uh, it's only about people, right? It's only about people. That's why, by the way, why we define the our category as business software defined def, designed for people. And why why I'm so much getting back into this and keep talking about business software designed for people, because we are using so much software in the organization in a B two B organization that is just bad software, right? Uh, let's take uh, you know software like Salesforce. It's an extremely important software for the organization, right? You cannot run a sales team without software, without Salesforce. And probably you will not be able to run a sales team without Salesforce for the next 10 years. But it is an extremely bad software. It's really, really hard to use. Nobody likes to use it. it. I don't know. It looks like something that was designed in the 90s and try to get report out of it, right? So... And you, and I can go one after the other because that's the standout, right? So it's not that Salesforce are doing something bad. It's the standout of Salesforce and Workday and, you know, whatever software you use them. And if you think about the people, right, and you put them in the center, right, then you will design it for them. So when you think about travel and expense, what people want? People want to book their trip really, really fast. They want to be able to change it fast. They, w- they want to be able to get support when something bad happens or they want to change something. 
they want to expense easily. They want to get feedback on this expense, right? Could, was this in policy or not? And not like two months afterwards when the company, when you're expensing and somebody will call you and ask you, why did you do that? And, and also the, the, the finance team wants to be able to get visibility, right? To everything that is going on all the time and not again in two months from now. So fintech or AI or cloud or mobile or whatever buzzword you want to use are enablers right, are enablers of it. And I think that sometimes people are confused and when they are confused, they're actually not successful because who cares about interchange or about the API to the Visa network or about like how exactly we are connecting to Stripe? Who cares about it? Most people most people don't even know what Stripe is or how, we, uh, you know, how the Visa network works, right? Um, what people care about is that they show up in the hotel, the booking is there, they get to the room, and even if they've done a lot of things there's like such as using the minibar or, or going and having breakfast there, when they're coming out and they take the receipt from the hotel, the invoice, they're not going to spend an hour to itemize it, which that's what happens today, right? Uh, if you use kind of traditional software for expense management, you need to itemize. What's itemized? You sit in front of an invoice and you'll say, okay, this was my room charge. This was the tax. This is tax number two. This is tax number three. This was the mini bar, so that's actually my own personal expense, right? And all of these things. And you basically have an exec or a salesperson that you pay a lot of money for spending 30 minutes doing that, right? And that's for like two, three receipts. Like if that person came back from a very long trip, that's like half a day. And I'm, you, I'm not exaggerating. Like, you know that it's true, right? So it doesn't make any sense. So if you put the person in the center, you're saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes, no matter what the technology is, what we call it, what the business model around it, I'm going to do whatever it takes uh, to make it work, right? To make it work. And it's interesting because it leads to connect, to Navan Connect. I think that if I'll go to FinTech, I think that there is a, a problem in the business model. I think the problem in the fintech business model that it does ride on an interchange and it has huge dependency on a, on two things that are happening in a, kind of in the, in, in the background. Uh, one is interest rate, right? So basically the state of the economy and the other is regulation. And there is a reason why a lot of fintech companies are eventually running on some regional bank, right? Because it's a regulation thing. Right. So I was new to fintech three years ago. You know, we are truly a travel company and kind of uh, we started to deal with fintech. And like everybody else, I've, I fell in love. Like, it's amazing. You can do amazing stuff. One, you know, every all of the magic that I've described er, er, uh, earlier, you swipe your card and you know so many things and you can create so much value. That's amazing. And it's still amazing. But you also start to realize, hey, but, you know, you need to raise so much debt to do that. And this is on a 0% interest rate. And this interchange, you start to ask yourself, but why exactly am I getting it? And then you are asking yourself, but I do need to give rewards. And then you start to ask yourself, but no matter what I'm going to do, how Capital One can give you 2% cashback? And how come Emacs can give you 5x cashback? So how exactly are you going to compete with that? Because you know that the entire pie is 3%. So how do they do that? Right? And you start to realize, and luckily I started to understand very early that something is off in 
what everybody will call fintech and maybe money 2020. I, it's like not the place to talk about it. But oh, dude, I kind of came I'm with you, you know, two years ago and said, hey, listen, can we do that human thing? You know, you swipe your card and it just works and I don't need to itemize and life is great. Can we do that? And can we sell software? Can we sell ACV? Can we actually charge for it for license and not try to be a bank? And can you do it from a technology perspective? And that leads to Navan Connect, which Navan Connect basically connects to your credit card, to the credit card that you like and love today. It could be your Citibank credit card. It could be your Chase credit card. It, your, it could be anything that today runs on the Visa and Master, MasterCard networks. And, and I think it's better because it solves the thing that I'm talking about. Like you can swipe your card and everything works amazingly. But And we are selling a license of software, which we are a software company, without us trying to be a bank. So it's a different business model, but I think it's also a more, uh, I would say, a responsible business model and more sustainable business model. And that's something that uh, that uh, that we did. Much more sustainable, right? Like one of the questions that I always kind of run in my head is if we suddenly had regulated interchange, right? Like a European level regulated interchange. What happens to the US? Well, Chime dies yesterday, right? Like there's like a very clear like extinction event that almost happens in a lot of the fintech market. Um, and I agree with you. I don't I actually think it's a thing that we should talk about money 2020. I think and I hope we are this year. Like some of these business models are and they they're from the era of zero interest rates. They're from the era of things that are just not true anymore. And I mean, it's wild, man. I had a conversation. Do you know the term achievement? No, no. Okay, so this is a wild one. I learned it this week. So what it means is actually basic. Well, I'm not I'm not going to define it exactly correctly, but the idea is basically after an account is dormant at a bank or at a financial institution for I think it's like two years, something along those lines. There's a company called Eisen that's like solving this exact problem, but they have to like send it to the state or send it to the federal government, depending on you know kind of it's a, if it's OCC or where it's regulated. And apparently, this has just been a very manual, um, you know, kind of like paper and pencil sort of you hire consultants to do it for you sort of a thing. And now we're getting to a point in the world of and I think this is fascinating in the world of fintech, where a company is literally building the automation layer for a sheetment so that all of these dormant accounts from two, three years, right, are finally getting to the point where legally we're having to send them to the state or send them to the federal government. And I, I think it's just like this very interesting canary in the coal mine of where we're at as an industry right now of like, one of the more important things for us to do right now is actually a sheetment. And, you know, there's another company actually that Kelly introduced me to that was um, uh, called Simple Closure. And the idea is, you know, be able to just like shut down the business quickly without having a ton of pain. You know, it's just it's, it feels like we're kind of getting to this point where, where we're maybe starting to admit to reality, but we're not saying it publicly, right? Like we're not admitting to these business models not working long term, but we're starting to build the systems that are going to allow them to fail easily, if that makes any sense. I think it gets back to what we've talked about earlier uh, of the no sugar coating uh, culture in, in approach. I think that, you know, you can definitely sugar coat or like lie to people, right? But you can also lie to yourself. Right. And, and, uh, and I think that, and, and it's not done uh, purposely, right? Uh, but it's done because you are riding on something and you're not asking yourself the question, but why that something is there. And that's something that we did and we did ask, but why interchange is there? 
why uh, you know why everybody can give you a lot of loans to basically give loans to others and because we did it luckily on time basically two years ago I have now a different technology that allows me to to, to shift right to a better business model right uh, I was there you know I have my own credit card we've created it we have a lot of customers just to give you an idea the um, payment and expense business is growing uh, on big numbers, more than 100% year over year. Uh, but it, it's an innovator's dilemma. Do I shift, right? Do I shift to a better business, creating the same value proposition for our customers, but shift to a better business model? Because two, two years ago, we asked these questions. Does it work in it? Back then, by the way, we were optimistic. We were asking, does it work in a 2%? interest rate environment. I think we're very optimistic. And we had an issue in 2%. So, and I think 2% was a long time ago. So, uh, so you see what I'm saying? I remember that we said, what happens if it goes to 2%? So, uh, so I think, uh, I think that that's, that's why, uh, you'll see kind of hard reckoning of people that didn't ask the right questions. And some of it is sugarcoating. Some of it is saying, hey, we are in the party. It feels great in this party. Uh, let's continue in the party. But, but I think you ask the question about people. If you care about your customers, if you care about the people, that if you actually created something amazing, a lot of the fintech companies created things that are amazing. We want them. We want them in five years from now, in 10 years from now, in 20 years from now. But the business model has to work. Totally. Totally. I think, I think we're just going to call this episode first principles with Ariel Cohen. I mean, I think that's the, <laughs> I think that's the takeaway here, man. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we just hit the top of the hour. This has been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I am just so excited to meet you in person in like four or five weeks. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to it. Hey, thanks for listening. If you're still listening, you're probably reaching for your phone to pick your next podcast or switch to music or just call it a day because you can't believe how much valuable information you just took in. But before you pick that next thing, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends and all that jazz. Generally scream from the rafters about how much you love FinTech Family Hour. Thank you again to our sponsor, FS Vector. And until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, your costs low, and I love you all. <laughs>